I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln established an annual national holiday of Thanksgiving to be observed on the last Thursday in November. And as this podcast episode is posting, this Thursday is our celebration of Thanksgiving in the United States. Most of us look forward to this holiday. It's a day in which we get to eat good food, we enjoy time with family and friends, and perhaps watch some football, and we will probably set aside at least a little time to thank the Lord. We all likely recognize the importance of being thankful. We tell our kids to say thank you when they're given something, and we generally try to be grateful ourselves. But how many of us really see gratitude as an important part of our Christianity, and especially as an important part of our worship? How many of us consider thankfulness to be a truly significant expression that we offer to God? I mean, if we were to ask most Christians what kinds of expressions of worship bring God the most glory, we would probably hear things like praise, love, joy, We'd probably hear things like that much more than we would hear someone answer, well, gratitude, thanksgiving. But I really believe that gratitude is an extremely important, if not the most important, expression of worship toward God that really brings him ultimate glory. Let me explain what I mean. What is the nature of gratitude? Well, gratitude is a response to grace. God acts on our behalf. He acts in grace and we respond in gratitude. We see this kind of thing expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul writes, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So gratitude is a response. It's a response to grace, and in particular, gratitude is a response of our affections toward God. It's very similar in many ways to responding with love toward God, or responding with joy, or responding with praise. These are all spiritual affections with which we respond in worship toward God when he has shown favor toward us. But notice that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul didn't say that what brought God most glory was increase of love toward him, as grace extends to more and more people, or increase of joy or increase of praise. He didn't say that. Now, of course, God's grace in our lives certainly does produce those affections, and God is certainly glorified when love and joy and praise toward him increase. But I believe that there is a particular reason that Paul focuses on gratitude here instead of other affections like love, joy, or praise. You see, all true spiritual affections have an object. And all true spiritual affections of worship have their object as God. This is why true spiritual affections are different from what we often mean when we talk about our feelings. Feelings are different than affections. Feelings often have no object. Mere feelings wallow in themselves. When we experience mere feelings apart from spiritual affections, our focus is not on any object. Our focus is purely on ourselves and the feelings themselves. We we love the feeling of love. We delight in the feeling of joy. 
So sometimes we just feel happy. And someone might ask, why are you happy? And we reply, oh, I don't know, no reason, I just, I just feel happy. But that's different from spiritual affection. Affections always have an object. They always have a reason. And of course, the problem is that sometimes in our modern discussions, we use the same word to both describe an affection and a feeling. For example, the word love could describe the affection that we express toward a spouse or the affection that we express toward a child or the affection that we express towards the Lord. Love could be an expression of affection toward an object because we value them. This affection has an object and therefore the love is directed toward that object. This, this kind of love is more about an inclination toward the object, toward the person, whether it be a spouse or a child or the Lord, and a commitment that we have toward that object is more about that than it is about a particular feeling. The feelings may come and go, but true love, that affection, endures all things, 1 Corinthians 13. But the word love can also describe a warm feeling that we have. And even though that feeling may result from a particular object, we often intend to enjoy the feeling for itself rather than the object of the feeling. Love in this kind of respect is something people fall in and out of. When the feeling passes away, we say that we are no longer in love. What we describe as joy or even praise can often be very similar. We could mean an affection we have toward an object, or we could mean a feeling we enjoy for itself, and often we mean both. So you can see sometimes we use the same word to describe both an affection that has an object and the feeling that we experience internally. But the thing about the affection of gratitude is that there really is no feeling that we associate with it. No specific feeling. I mean, think about it. What is the feeling of gratitude? And by definition, gratitude always has an object. The object is always the focus of gratitude. That's different than things like love or joy. So you, so you might say, I just feel happy, but I really don't have any particular reason. I just, I just feel this way. But you would never say that about gratitude. If you, quote-unquote, feel gratitude, there's always a reason. You always feel gratitude towards someone because of something they did for you or something they gave you or simply because of who they are. And with that understanding of the nature of gratitude, we're beginning to see why Paul would choose the affection of gratitude as that which connects God's grace to his glory instead of something like love or joy or praise. But before I develop that further, I want to look at just two more ways that gratitude is different than other affections. Unlike most other feelings, gratitude really isn't something you can artificially work up through external means. I mean, if you feel sad, you can work up happiness inside you through something external, like upbeat music or funny entertainment. And in that case, there really is no object of the happiness. You just feel happy because the music or the entertainment made you happy. We regularly do this in our lives. We work up happiness inside of us. But how do you work up gratitude? You can't really. It has to have a reason. It has to have an object. And that distinguishes gratitude from just about every other kind of affection. 
And then finally, remember that we are talking about affection that we give to God in response to his gracious gift to us. Now, it's true that getting a gift from someone often produces in us other kinds of emotions, like joy. But isn't it often the case that when that happens, we automatically direct the joy toward the gift instead of the giver? When someone gives us something, we're often filled with happiness, but sometimes we're mostly happy about the gift rather than the one who has given us the gift. This is even often true with the gift of salvation, unfortunately. God gives us the gracious gift of free forgiveness from sin, and we are happy about that, but we often are mostly happy that we don't have to go to hell, or we're happy that we get to spend eternity in heaven. We're more happy about those things than we really are happy in God. But gratitude never works that way. We could never direct gratitude toward the gift. That wouldn't make any sense. By definition, by essence, gratitude is directed toward the giver. Now, I want to expand on that even further and connect it with this idea of God's grace and bringing him even more glory. But first, I'd like to recommend to you a hymn that's quite fitting for this theme of gratitude and thanksgiving, although it's certainly also fitting for any time of year. It's a hymn entitled, Father, We Thank Thee. And it is actually based off of a prayer that was composed likely in the early 2nd century. We find this prayer in a church order, sometimes called the Didache, or the teaching, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. This is an early 2nd century document that very likely was a sort of guidebook for new converts to Christianity. It admonishes them to live holy lives and talks about what that might look like. It also describes a baptismal service. And then it describes a church service in which that newly baptized Christian would participate, including an observation of the Lord's Supper. And this is one of the earliest documents we have that describes a Christian worship service. And part of that description of the Lord's Supper is a prayer of thanksgiving. And that prayer begins, We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your child, which you have revealed through Jesus, your child. To you be glory forever. And the the prayer continues from there. It's one of the earliest prayers of thanksgiving associated with the Lord's Supper. Well, in 1941, a man named Bland Tucker translated and put into meter this prayer of thanksgiving from the 2nd century Didache, and put it in hymn form. And now it's available for us to sing as an expression of thanksgiving to the Lord. The first stanza of his metrical version of this prayer reads, Father, we thank thee who has planted thy holy name within our hearts. Knowledge and faith and life immortal, Jesus thy Son to us imparts. Thou, Lord, didst make all for thy pleasure, didst give man food for all his days, Giving in Christ the bread eternal, thine is the power, be thine the praise. I'd encourage you to go to classichymns.org and scroll down to Father We Thank Thee, and you can download free PDFs of this hymn. This is fitting for an expression of thanksgiving because historically, the idea of thankfulness that we've been talking about came to characterize the service of worship for Christians, especially the table service, which of course is the context of this prayer from the Didache. And this is due to the fact that early Christians connected 
Christ's giving thanks for the cup and bread in the New Testament descriptions of the Last Supper to observing the Lord's table. And they connected that prayer of thanks of Christ in that context to the Lord's table so much that they began to call the table the Eucharist, which simply comes from the Greek word for thankfulness. The observance of the Last Supper by Jesus and his disciples appears in all four Gospels, though John doesn't really give any details of the meal itself. But the particular elements of the meal mentioned in the Gospel records and and repeated again later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, each really became significant for the development of the observance of the Lord's table later in the early church. We read in Matthew and Mark that Jesus blessed, or in Luke, gave thanks. That's that word, eucharisteo. He gave thanks for the bread, which he then broke and gave to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. And again, we read, when he had given thanks, that's why this theme of thankfulness and this prayer of thankfulness is so directly connected with the table. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Most scholars would agree that the earliest church services began as a natural extension of Jewish synagogue practice, but then with some Christian elements added, since the earliest Christians were Jews, that would have been only natural. And so the early synagogue services consisted of a reading of scriptures and instruction from the scriptures and prayers. And so the earliest church services likely constituted those elements, simple instruction from scripture and prayer, just like the synagogue. But as Acts 2.42 describes and other passages in the New Testament, Christians added to that traditional synagogue liturgy a significant component, the breaking of bread. And this is what the Lord himself had commanded them to observe in breaking the bread in remembrance of of him. And so along with the service of the word, reading the word, explanation of the word, prayer, Christians added a service of the table in which they commemorated Christ's death on their behalf. And we know from the New Testament that Christians broke bread together in this way when they gather. And we even have a description in 1 Corinthians 11 of what they did when they gathered. And it connects directly from the narratives of the Last Supper In the Gospels, Paul commanded churches to take bread, to give thanks, that's that word eucharisteo again, to break it, and then to consume it, repeating the same steps for the cup as the bread. The service of the word, based on the synagogue, and the service of the table, comprised of these four steps from 1 Corinthians, came to characterize early Christian worship. And again, it's significant that early Christians explicitly connected the observance of the table with an expression of thanksgiving. I really do believe that gratitude is the best link between God's grace toward us and bringing him ultimate glory. And I believe that it is the best link because while love or joy or praise could absolutely be directed toward God and should be directed toward God as a result of his grace toward us. Many times what we call love or joy or praise are actually mere feelings that are more about us or the gift than the one who showed grace toward us. 
And in the case of the religious affection of gratitude, the very nature of the biblical term in 2 Corinthians 4.15 makes clear that the biblical affection of gratitude is always produced by grace in our lives. You see, the Greek word for grace is charis. And the Greek term for thanksgiving, as I've already mentioned, is eucharistia. That's the word in 2 Corinthians 4.15. You can see the word charis baked right into the idea of thanksgiving in the text. And the original readers of this letter would have immediately recognized the parallel that Paul is making here. So as charis extends to more and more people, it may increase eucharistian. And that's why I've been using the term gratitude rather than thanksgiving. It better resembles the parallel between gratitude and grace that exists in the Greek between charis and eucharistia. So as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase gratitude. You see, grace produces gratitude, and it increases then, according to 2 Corinthians 4.15, in direct proportion to how undeserved the gift is. That's the definition of grace. The more ill-deserved the favor, the more gratitude results. And this is why true gratitude always glorifies the giver. Gratitude is always humble because we are acknowledging that we do not deserve the gift. If we think we deserve the gift, then we're not thankful. I mean, if I pay for a dinner at a restaurant, I'm not really thankful because it's not an act of grace that the waiter gave us food. I paid for that. And yet here's the thing. We do often say thank you to waiters when they bring us our food, don't we? Why do we do that? We've paid for it. We deserve it. Why do we say thank you even if we really do deserve what we're receiving? Well, we say thank you because we instinctively know that genuine gratitude is an expression of humility. We're trying to show respect and honor toward the waiter even though we paid for the meal. And this is why true and genuine gratitude always glorifies God. If God shows grace toward us and we are truly grateful, that gratitude inherently has God as its object and it inherently acknowledges that we are undeserving of the gift and that glorifies God. Attempting to express love toward God or joy in God, which we absolutely should do, by the way, but attempting to express love or joy to God often results in narcissistic indulgence where we, where we love the feeling of love, or we love the feeling of joy rather than God. But gratitude never works that way. By definition and essence, gratitude is a humble acknowledgement of our unworthiness to receive the gift and a profound exaltation of the giver. God said in Psalm 50 verse 23, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. You know, we often think of praise or joy or love as the ultimate expressions of worship toward God. We expect that true worship will always be characterized by intense emotion and heightened praise and excited joy. But really, the affection most associated in Scripture with worship is actually something perhaps less flashy, less viscerally intense, and less directly connected to particular feelings. The affection most associated in the Bible with worship is thanksgiving. Listen to how God characterizes Christian worship at the end of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful. 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We are ill-deserving of any forgiveness, and yet because of the grace of God, because of God's ill-deserved favor toward us, in Christ our sins are forgiven. And the most natural and the most fitting and the most appropriate expression of worship toward God in response to grace, that expression that brings him ultimate glory because it is always directed toward the giver and it always exalts the giver, the expression of worship most appropriate to God's grace in our lives is an expression of gratitude. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating and please share a link to the podcast on social media. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.